This podcast sponsored by Prime Super, a leading industry super fund specialising in the health and aged care sector. Go to primesuper.com.au to see what we can do for you. I'm with Professor Eddie Strivens, Associate Professor with JCU School of Medicine and President of the Australia New Zealand Society of Geriatric Medicine. Eddie, thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem at all, Connor. So uh, maybe just to get a, a, a good understanding, maybe, you know, we're hearing a lot of terms going around, especially with the Royal Commission. So your area, geriatrics, you're a geriatrician. What exact clinical practice do you perform and what is the scope of your role? That's a great question. Uh, geriatricians are physicians with skills, training and expertise in the care of complex, frail older people. So we're physicians similar to a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist and have gone through a training program with the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. So often from qualification as a doctor through to uh, being qualified as a consultant geriatrician could be anything from 10 to 12 years of training and, and work experience. And, and geriatricians are really the experts at looking at the care of complex older people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we successfully treat many conditions common to older people and, and through that professional assessment and tailored intervention, really help many older people maintain their independence and remain at home. Mm-hmm. And do you primarily treat patients in hospital wards or in aged care facilities or where is your primary area of treatment? Uh, well, geriatricians work across the whole care continuum. Mm-hmm. Many geriatricians are employed through hospitals and work across acute care, subacute care, which can be either older person's evaluation and management or rehabilitation through to community-based rehabilitation and assessment uh, of people in homes or in outpatient clinics or day hospitals through to residential aged care. So we, we can look after people across the whole care continuum. We have some geriatricians who work um, exclusively in hospitals, some who work exclusively in the community, some that work uh, privately and many that work a combination of public and some private work. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were called recently to give testimony to the Royal Commission into aged care. Um, For those like myself, actually, I didn't manage to catch your uh, testimony. What was the primary reason you were called? Uh, the primary reason we were called was was around giving, I guess, a bit of a background to the Commission around uh, the medical issues affecting uh, older Australians and looking at, uh, I guess, developing a, a little bit of a, a, a lexicon and baseline on these conditions for the Commission. Um, we feel strongly that, that um, access to high-quality medical care is a critical component to the overall well-being of complex older people, especially people receiving coordinated community care or in residential care. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, that, that older people really deserve better access to specialists who are experts in this. Mm-hmm. And that's about uh, managing specific medical problems, as well as accessing GPs and primary care services through their, uh, within their place of residence. Mm-hmm. And and I did manage to read some of the transcript of your um, of your testimony, your uh, witness statement. And so, if I could uh, turn to the topic of medication and psychotropic prescription, which is one of the areas you covered, what role did geriatricians have in monitoring the appropriate use of medication in people as they age? 
Well, we're, we're, we're good team players, Connor. We, we work well and play well with others. So, so we work with primary care physicians and general practitioners, as well, as well as nursing and allied health and pharmacists as well, who are a key component in this, around looking at quality use of medications, of, of which the, the use of psychotropics is one of them. So there are recommendations so there's, uh, and in guidelines that are available through either the National Prescribing Service and also guidelines through the NHMRC group as well, which can help prescribers look at, at quality use of medications. Now, some of what I was talking to the Royal Commission around was around, I, I, I guess, the the um, use of alternatives to medication. Mm -hmm. I think when we're talking about the use of medications for dealing with uh, behavioural and psychological symptoms of, of dementia, it's it's important to realise that that we should really be looking this at this as a cognitive disability, and through looking at these symptoms, really thinking about these as being an expression of unmet need. Is this due to pain? Is this due to interactions with the physical environment? Are these due to psychosocial needs? And if you think of it in that respect, and, and if you think about cognitive disabilities, what some of the things we often talk about memory problems as being a proxy for dementia, but actually dementia is, is changes across many cognitive domains, including the ability to recognise people, faces and objects, or uh, um, the lack of which is agnosia, or problems with apraxia or dyspraxia, where purposeful movement is difficult. You can see that actually what you're, what you're dealing with with a symptom is actually a, a sign of changes within the brain. And when we look at it that way, there are options there to look at non-pharmacological management first. And, and too often, what should be the last resort, i.e. medications, becomes the first resort. And, mm -hmm. and if, if we flip this issue on its head, rather than looking at quality use of medications, we should be looking at quality use of not using medications. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that, that, that these agents are, are used uh, probably a, a little bit more than we would see, well, a lot more than we see would be ideal. And, and studies... Uh, outside of Australia, but also within Australia, have shown up to 80% of people in residential care facilities with dementia on a, at least one psychotropic. Mm -hmm. By that, we're talking about antidepressants as well as um, antipsychotic medications. But the reality is probably only around 10% of those would benefit. And an example that, uh, that, that we use comes out of a, 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 um, a, a really good a paper that was done around looking at minimising the use of antipsychotics in, in dementia in the UK. And just to look at if we used antipsychotics on a thousand people with dementia for 12 weeks, we would see some benefit, as we said, in 10 to 20 percent, where you'll see some reduction in those target symptoms. Um, but at the cost of around 10 deaths, 18 strokes and increased risk of falls in about 10% of those people as well. So you can see that, that, that the use of these medications is not without their side effects. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing that I guess we have some concern about is, is, is adequate consent on their use. Because again, any drug with an effect has potential side effects. Anything we take we always have to balance the, 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 the benefit versus the potential risk of treatment. Some agents have more risks than others. These are relatively high risk medications. 
and from a study in New South Wales that probably adequate consent was only found in about six and a half percent of people so it's a question of the the benefit is probably only about 10% of the people that use them mm -hmm. and the consent is only found in about six and a half percent so it's it, it's really around tying together those uh, 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 using non-drug treatments first and tailoring those interventions to the individual it's it's really never going to be a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. and so apart away from the literature have you noticed yourself uh a kind of uh, an over exuberance or uh, you know a, 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 a people going towards uh, sedating or using drugs sooner than they should look i i think through my own personal practice uh, uh, and you know I, I would be the first to admit that that i do use these medications on occasions i i wouldn't say that i never use them but i'd like to think that we use them as a, as a last resort rather than a first resort and, mm -hmm. and I, I i think we sometimes see that the, the situation where um through issues with staffing or funding it can be difficult to provide those non-pharmacological management strategies and so so that that the, the reaching for the prescription pad becomes an earlier intervention and an intervention based on a larger number of, of people than we'd see that would be ideal as we said that, that there's probably a a number of, and that small number of probably around 10 to 20 percent uh, of people with these symptoms who will benefit um, but that means 80% to 90% of them won't. And, and we are seeing those, those, those sort of numbers in, in real life as well as in the literature. So how do we, there's probably a, a generation of clinicians, nurses, doctors who've grown up on the, uh, the way things are done now. So how do we turn that, that ship around and suggest to these clinicians that, um, like you say, only 10% are going to benefit. So maybe we should look at other avenues. I, I think I think kind of that's the that's the the big question that I'm hoping that the Royal Commission will will delve into in more detail. And I think we've already heard some interventions that can be beneficial. I think we've seen some good work come out already from the uh, Dementia Services Australia and the, and the Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service and the Severe Behaviour Response Team. I think you can argue about some of the terminology, um, but in fact the move towards looking at providing support, advocacy and consultancy for non-pharmacological interventions. Training and education is, is, is key. Um, the fact that, you know, even, even within health organisations, you'll often have to do a tonne of mandatory training around uh, fire evacuations, around lifting, around everything else, um, but yet we don't mandate training in management of people living with dementia which in the end, if you're working in residential care, makes over 50% of your workload. If you work in acute care in a, in a hospital, still makes up around 10 to 20% of your workload, if not closer to 40% if you're working in a, a hip fracture service or working in a, an older person's ward. So I, I think mandating training and skills and actually looking at, at supporting uh, people with, uh, with an interest in, in developing those skills. We, we need to acknowledge the, uh, uh, the specialty as a, as a key one uh, for the benefit of, of both older Australians, but I guess us as a, 
as a society in general. I mean, you can really tell the quality of the society by the way in which it deals with its most vulnerable members. And I think what we're, I would hope to see is a paradigm shift here where we actually look at respect and integration of older Australians and not fragmentation and uh, looking at, at things in a, a, a more negative light. It's important to realise that medical conditions often multiple in interacting and including cognitive decline are the main reason for older people moving into residential aged care. And adequate management of all these conditions requires the involvement of medical professionals, especially those with expertise in caring for older people. So it's, it's, it's really, for me, it's around an interdisciplinary, integrated care for complex older people. So it's not that everyone needs every component but every person should have access to that care be it to geriatricians gps allied health and specialist nursing well professor eddie strivens um, thank you very much for giving us your time no problem at all Connor.